and I'm an attorney here at the New York Prosecutors Training Institute and one of the traffic safety resource prosecutors for New York State. I am back with John Kwasnowski, reconstructionist and professor emeritus from Western New England University. This is part two of a two-part interview series where John is giving prosecutors tips for working with their reconstructionist. So to start off, John, for those of you who don't know John, can you give us a little bit of background about your experience as a crash reconstructionist? I'm a physicist and I taught for 31 years at Western New England University. 1985, I got a call from the county prosecutor and he had just had a state police trooper disqualified by a judge and wanted to know could I read a reconstruction report and testify about the scientific accuracy. So two ADAs come to my office. The next morning I go to court and testify. And many, many years later, here I am. So how important is it for the expert to discuss any problems with the case or issues that the defense might expose on cross-examination? Well, I think it's so important that it maybe should be number one on the list because the embarrassing moments for an expert happen when the defense is asking questions that the prosecutor could have asked. So that if there is something that's going to be problematic in the case, it's a lot easier for the prosecutor to ask questions that inoculate the witness rather than to think nobody's going to figure it out or nobody's going to know and just let that loaded gun sit on the table. And then the defense attorney picks it up and throws the overhand fastballs that the expert has trouble handling and also makes the question sound as though the prosecutor hid something or makes the question sound as though the expert doesn't want to admit to it or that it's more pivotal or important than it really is. Why let the defense attorney phrase the questions if the prosecutor can ask them in a way that just lets the expert explain? So if there's something, for example, that the expert didn't do, it's a lot easier to just explain why it wasn't done. And if the only reason was it just wasn't done, then at least the expert can say, we just didn't do it, as opposed to allowing the question to make an inference that it wasn't done for some sinister reason. So I think the big thing about discussing these problems is that the officer has to be forthright. It's terrible when the prosecutor stumbles on something that he or she didn't know after the pretrial conference. And I think it's disgraceful that the prosecutor gets sort of bushwhacked that way because the police officer has to know that everything will come out in trial. There's nothing that's sort of going to be hidden forever because a good defense attorney and the expert witness for the defense will just find things out. And I think it's important to talk about them in the state's case and not let them just lay on the table to be used to hurt the state. So just admit it if you didn't do something. And if there's no other reason than you should have done it but didn't, then you just have to say that. And so it sounds like that's a question that the people should always be asking of their experts beforehand to make sure that they prompt them to give them that information. Okay, great. I mean, 
the prosecutor should always sort of close out the conference with a very straightforward question. Is there anything that can hurt us if I don't know about it right now? Is there anything you didn't do? Is there anything you didn't do correctly? Is there any assumption you made? I have to know if there's anything that can hurt us. And I think that relies then on the prosecutor trusting the police officer and the police officer trusting the prosecutor. Absolutely. And ultimately, I think the jury trusting the prosecutor and the expert. Right. So how can a reconstruction expert help to identify defense theories? So maybe not so much problems, but what the defense theory might be for the case. Well, my experience, Lauren, has been that defense experts have favorite things that they like to do. They like to challenge the drag factor, make it lower. They like to challenge multiple measurements as not being enough. They like to challenge the way that a measurement was made. So once a defense expert finds something that they can use to create some doubt or create something to discuss in the jury room, they tend to do it over and over and over. So I would say the first thing the reconstruction expert can help with, the state's reconstruction expert, is to just talk about what the defense expert likes to do. Does the state's expert know the defense expert? Now, in New York State, I work a lot with the troopers, and they are networked. So if a defense expert crosses paths with a trooper in Syracuse, I'd say within a few weeks, every trooper in New York State knows something about that encounter. Certainly, Lieutenant Dan Bates has gotten some feedback about this expert, what he tried to do, how outrageous he might have been or whatever. And so I think one good resource for prosecutors is their own expert, but also Lieutenant Dan Bates, because he has contact with troopers all over the state. And troopers keep track of defense experts, and many of them can really tell you specific things that you can use as prosecutor in a case that will be very helpful. You should also ask other prosecutors about the defense expert. I mean, quite honestly, defense experts don't come to New York once and then disappear. So some people just work in New York State, and they appear again and again and again. And I think NIPTI has resources available to prosecutors with regard to transcripts and so forth for defense experts. So I think what you can do with your expert is, A, find out about the other expert, But the other thing you can do is ask what you expect are the possibilities for a defense theory. Because I know when I read a report and review it, I can identify maybe one or two or three things that if I were a defense expert, I would think is reasonable to look at. Even though defense experts have their favorite things and sometimes they're so outrageous that you can't really anticipate them, I think your expert can say, well, they might go here or they might go here, but that's about the only things that are open. So I think your expert can really narrow down what it is that the adverse expert might opine about. The other thing I think that you should consider doing if you're a prosecutor is, and I don't know if there's any reason you can't do this in New York State, is to call the adverse expert and just ask to talk to them. You might learn a lot about them just from the reaction they have to that, and if they talk to you, you might really learn a lot about what they're going to be saying. I think the other thing that you might learn about an expert if you get a chance to talk to them is whether you judge that they will be honest. And 
you know, I've helped any number of prosecutors because I knew the defense expert by just telling the prosecutor, this expert is honest. And I've gotten a lot of feedback after a trial that this expert became the prosecutor's expert because they were honest. And that was something the prosecutor really played into. So I think that's important, too, to try to get an assessment of whether or not the expert is honest. Absolutely. So is there anything else that you can think of that a prosecutor should be discussing with their reconstruction expert that may help the expert with their testimony? Well, of course, there are legal things that the witness never knows and I never knew. And, you know, looking back on many cases I've testified in, it would have been very helpful to know, for example, what specific elements the prosecutor had to prove. I think if I knew that, I don't think I would have testified differently in terms of content, but I think I might have testified differently in terms of the emphasis that I placed on certain things. Because if a prosecutor tells me the elements that they have to prove, I can then keep those in the back of my mind while I'm testifying and perhaps integrate them a little better into what my opinion is rather than sounding just purely scientific. Another thing I think is important is that the prosecutor has to understand what the limitations are to their own expert's opinion so that it's sort of awkward or embarrassing if I give my opinion, I give my opinion, I give my opinion, and then the prosecutor asks, well, and can't you say that, blah, blah, and I can't say because that's not with any certainty. And I have to say in an awkward way, oh, no, I really can't say that because this, this, this. So I think it's important in the pretrial conference for the prosecutor to see what are the limits of the expert's opinion by maybe asking those additional questions. Will you be able to say, if I ask you about, would you be able to say? And I think that really is helpful to the witness because when those questions are asked, they're embarrassing, but also it breaks a little bit of trust between the prosecutor and the expert during that trial experience because as a witness, I start thinking, what are they going to ask other than this? What else are they going to ask me that will be awkward? And it's sort of disconcerting in a way. I think also the prosecutor should discuss any pretrial rulings on evidence or admissibility of exhibits because I think it's terrible if I say something that there was already a pretrial ruling on and I end up with an objection from the defense attorney and then a reprimand from the judge because I said the word or talked about something that I shouldn't have talked about. And I think it's important that the prosecutor make sure that the witness knows about those pretrial rulings. And maybe the last thing is to know a little bit about the judge. I know I feel comfortable the second time I sit in the witness box with a judge than I did the first time. So that tells me that even though I don't have a lot of conversation with the judge during my testimony, I do somehow gather information about the judge, about their demeanor, about the way they handle the objections, about what they allow the witness to say. So I think I want to know about the judge. I think the prosecutor can tell me if I don't have any experience with that judge. So I think those are things the prosecutor could be very helpful with. Great. So it sounds like a lot of this is preparation and communication with the expert. So along those same lines, do you have any recommendations for additional investigative activities that may help to strengthen the people's case? Well, I think there are a couple things that come to mind that prosecutors do know about 
but maybe is worth mentioning. The first being the EDR, Event Data Recorder Evidence. The prosecutor should understand that the EDR evidence is not standalone evidence. When you have EDR evidence, you don't download or image that EDR in the vehicle. And as a EDR technician or analyst, you don't then say, I've got a printed report, I'm ready to go to trial. There has to be some corroboration, some substantiation for what's in that file. So I think one of the things is for the prosecutor to understand that it's just another piece of evidence. It's very good evidence. In many cases, it's very exacting evidence, but it is just another piece and shouldn't stand alone. With regard to actually getting the download or the image, it's called an image because you never really do take the information out of the EDR. You just take a snapshot of it. One thing is that the softwares are being updated frequently, and so it would not be uncommon from one year to the next to have three or four or five different versions of software as updates are added. And so I think one thing the prosecutor should ask the expert witness is, has this been downloaded with the most recent version of the software? It is not that the data will change, but as new versions of the software become available, additional data might be retrieved that was not available with an earlier version of the software. It doesn't change what's already gathered with an earlier version. In other words, the numbers that have already been available in an earlier version won't suddenly change to different numbers. But there might be new data available that is only available with these newer versions of the software. And I think it leaves an opening for the defense if, in fact, the download wasn't done with the most recent version, because I think then there might be an inference by the defense that there's something that might be hidden by not having the newest software. I think there's an availability of a motion in front of the judge to disallow the EDR evidence because the most recent version of the software wasn't used. And in fact, that's totally false because a new version would not change anything in the older version's data. But I think it's important to cover that base. Another thing about the EDR evidence is that the person who is gathering the information has to have training and certification. And so there are two certifications. One is technician level, and it might in an earlier version have been called operator. So a technician or operator is a person who is certified to get the data out of the box how to use the hardware, how to use the software, how to download or image the box. The other level of certification is called analyst, and that requires additional days of training and means that that person has looked at the interpretation of the evidence. What do the caveats in the preamble of the report mean? What do the... And so I think for uh, a person who's going to be an expert witness giving an opinion based on the evidence, that person have analyst qualifications, and that requires additional training. And again, I say it shouldn't be standalone. It should be corroborated or reinforced by a reconstruction, a video of the crash, GPS data, speedometer evidence, vehicle damage, witness statements, etc. So that report shouldn't be standalone because there are things in the report that might be challenged without corroboration.
Another area I think that prosecutors might not be aware of as much as they might is the use of video to get vehicle speed. The prosecutor should ask, are there any videos that would give us a vehicle speed? And if so, can those vehicles be analyzed to get a vehicle speed? And there may be reasons why the video can't be analyzed. There may be reasons why there aren't landmarks that could good, give good distance uh, measurements or why there's no way to verify the timestamp on a video or the frames per second rate of the video. And in those cases, it may not be possible to do an analysis. But I think having a video analysis gives you a really good indication of speed. I just worked out in Suffolk County with a forensics person there by the name of Tom Zavesky, and he did a beautiful job of getting a speed from video and then using a vehicle with a known speed as a test vehicle to run through the scene and analyze that vehicle speed and show that the method he used for the case was verified by the method he used with the known vehicle speed. And I thought it was just unattackable. I just thought it was excellent. So please don't overlook video analysis would be my comment. And finally, I think it's important to consider vehicle mechanical problems. I always suggest to a prosecutor in a situation that might be defendable by a mechanical failure or defect that they have to check for recalls on the vehicles and then further check if there were recalls that might be causative, that those recalls had been repaired or satisfied. I think there are other things in the recall database, though, that are just as important. For example, if you go to NHTSA.gov and look at their recall database, you'll find that you can also look up what are called TSB, Technical Service Bulletins. And the Technical Service Bulletins are messages that the manufacturer sends to their dealerships to alert them to potential problems that are going to come in and potential repairs or solutions for those problems. And I think, and I don't know the way NHTSA does this, but I think technical service bulletins, if those repairs result in enough injury or enough fatality, they then become recalls. So there's some statistical counting, and I think technical service bulletins are the same things that recalls are, but they aren't serious enough yet. So I think you can check either on the NHTSA website or you can check with a local dealer for any technical service bulletins for that make, model, year vehicle. If you go to the NHTSA website, you'll also see a file called complaints. And I thought complaints were just... My windshield wipers wore out too quickly. I didn't get the mileage that I thought I would get. I thought complaints were complaints. And so I looked, and many of the complaints are just simply complaints. But I had a case recently where a prosecutor who is now in civil practice called me and described that his client's vehicle had just lost control and gone off the road. And he assured me there was no alcohol, he assured me there was no drugs, and there wasn't speed. And so I went on the NHTSA website and looked at the recalls, none, technical service bulletins, none. And by just pure being inquisitive, checked on complaints. And on the complaints file for that vehicle, there were 845 complaints, and 70 of them described vehicle losing control veering to the right. Vehicle losing control veering to the right. Seventy times people had complained about that, and the language they used 
made it clear that the right front suspension of the vehicle had corroded and essentially broken away from the body of the vehicle. So now the right front tire is just floating out there with no linkage to the steering mechanism anymore. So I called this friend of mine and said, do you still have the vehicle? Yes. Would you have your investigator go over and take a look underneath? He called me back and described, underneath the metal is like paper. You can tear it apart with your fingers. And so I'd suggest that in addition to recalls and technical service bulletins, you should also be checking complaints. And while you're there, there's a fourth category called investigations. And investigations lead to service bulletins, lead to recalls. So I'd say it's important if you're thinking about any kind of mechanical possibility, investigate all the possibilities, including complaints and investigations on that NHTSA site. I think we've been overlooking this for many years, and I know I didn't until a few years ago. I didn't look at complaints and investigations because I just quite honestly didn't consider they were as serious as they might be. Great point, John, and great point about not just looking at the recalls, because I do know that many prosecutors look at the recalls, but I'm not certain that they're aware that right. these other things are available. So excellent point. Okay, so before we wrap up, one more question for you. Over the past, oh, I don't know, 20 years or so, we have had a pretty rapid expansion of technology. And so there are all sorts of forms of digital evidence that may not have been available previously, such as uh, cell phone evidence, infotainment centers, GPSs, um, possibly even fitness watches, such as a Fitbit or something similar. What would you say about using these types of evidence to corroborate your expert's opinion or just using them at all? Well, I think they're great corroboration, and I would emphasize for the prosecutors who already deal with cell phone evidence and might be dealing with the infotainment center, the information that's in the console, in the dash of the vehicle itself, that that information is available with equipment much like the equipment that's used to download the EDR. It's different, but police agencies are familiar with it and detectives are familiar with it. Remember that also the portable GPSs like Garmin and TomTom are gold mines. I have a little Garmin that I use in my car, a portable Garmin. It maintains 24 hours of speed for my vehicle every second for the past 24 hours. And it's downloadable with just the ordinary software that comes with the Garmin. So it's not a high-tech purchase that you have to make. And finally, the thing about Fitness Watch, and I don't know how many of the prosecutors have dealt with a Fitness Watch or something like that that has GPS in it. But I taught in North Carolina with the troopers about three years ago, and they had done a case where a pedestrian was walking along the road wearing a fitness watch, they were able to show by looking at the GPS data that the pedestrian was not on the traveled portion of the road, but in fact was on the shoulder. They were able to show where the point of impact was because the pedestrian suddenly changed direction, and they were able to show the approximate throw distance of the pedestrian's body directly from the GPS information. So I would, I guess as a highlight, say, Keep your eye out for fitness watches and prosecutors. If you have four teenagers in a vehicle with one of them driving in a reckless manner, you have the potential that four of them might be wearing GPS collecting information for you. So I would alert police 
to start looking for fitness watches more and more. I think with regard to digital evidence, the cell phones, infotainment center, and even the portable GPS, pretty well known to prosecutors, but maybe this is something new to really draw your attention to the fitness watches. I think it gives you the potential of gathering extremely useful information from occupants of a vehicle rather than having to look for it electronically in a cell phone or infotainment center. They might be wearing it on their wrist. And I think you have to consider, of course, seizing it and what the ramifications are with your New York State law. But please consider fitness watches as a whole new box of information for us. Well, John, thank you so much. As always, I really appreciate you sharing your time and your knowledge with prosecutors. I know that you've been such a great resource for all of us over the years, and I think that these are some great tips that will really help our people to prepare. So thank you so much for being here, and I look forward to talking to you next time. Thank you, Lauren. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.